The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On this week's Court TV podcast, the shooting death of Breonna Taylor by Louisville, Kentucky police has caused outrage across the nation, so much so that the Attorney General of Kentucky has done something unprecedented, releasing the audio of the grand jury testimony for the case. Court TV's Julie Janae has combed through the hours of material and will share with us what she's learned. And should the police have been charged with homicide or were the prosecutors just doing what the law allows? This is the Court TV Podcast with Vinnie Politan. Welcome to the Court TV Podcast. I'm Vinny Politan. Thank you so much for uh, downloading and listening. And before we start uh, what we're talking about here today, I just want to say thank you to everyone who sent uh, their notes of encouragement, the get well wishes, and everything else. Uh, as you may or may not know, I was in COVID lockdown for a few weeks, and I am back. I am testing negative. I am feeling great. I am energized. I'm ready to go. But I really appreciate all, all your thoughts, uh, all your prayers during that time. Uh, but I did very well. I had what, what I'm calling Corona light. So I, I feel good. All right. So let's get to what we have to talk about today. And, you know, at Court TV, we've been covering this story since the beginning. And I remember doing an interview with uh, Benjamin Crump on this very early on before he even got to uh, Louisville, Kentucky on this case. We're talking about the Breonna Taylor case. And this is a case that has um, taken on a life of its own. In the beginning, no one really knew about it. It was overshadowed by other cases that were happening in other places. Uh, we covered it continuously throughout. And, and now, as we know, everyone is saying her name, whether it's A-list celebrities like Oprah um, or anyone else. Uh, people know who she is. They, they know the story. And we are continuing to cover it here on Court TV and on the Court TV podcast. Now, I want to talk about where we are right now in this story, because um, there was a cry for criminal charges. There need to be criminal charges for the death of Breonna Taylor. And I said from the beginning, um, the criminal investigation needs to go to the warrant that was obtained by police. But I, have, I haven't seen anything about that. I I, I I don't know what has happened there, but there has been a grand jury. And the grand jury, um, headed by the attorney general, who is, you know, you're in charge. It's, one, it's a one-sided affair. Did not recommend any charges related to the shooting death of Breonna Taylor based upon uh, the evidence as he sees it. There was an outcry. And now this case has taken a turn that no other case I've covered in my career has ever taken where we are now going inside the grand jury room and we are hearing the evidence from inside the grand jury room and it's being made public. I mean, grand jury is generally secretive. And in and, and some states, even the defense attorneys have no idea what happens in the grand jury. But here, everyone knows, especially those who follow and watch Court TV, because we have played it on television. We have uh, posted it for you uh, on our website and social media as well. So this is now where the story is. And I want to bring in Court TV crime and justice reporter Julia Janae. There were 15 hours, 15 hours of recordings that were released. Julia Janae listened to it all, went through it. 
Uh, Julia, great to have you on the podcast. Hey, Vinny. Great to be here. So give folks an idea of what was released here. What was What's in these 15 hours that was released? These are audio recordings. Imagine a tape recorder being there in the room with the grand jury, and they hit record every time a witness takes the stand and goes on the record. And you also hear some of the grand jurors asking questions. The prosecutors are making uh, the most presentation. They're the ones who are asking these questions of the witnesses. So we're hearing everything that's going on as far as the testimony and evidence but we don't hear how things began and we don't hear how things ended. Like what do you what mean? What do you mean? I mean, the recommendations, what the prosecutor ultimately said, jurors, now that you've heard all of the evidence in this case, it is my recommendation. I'm imagining this is how the prosecution said it to these right, right. jurors. But uh, now that you've heard everything, we recommend that you do this, that, and the third. You have these charges and it's your decision on whether or not to indict on those charges. We do know from Attorney General Daniel Cameron that he says he only gave them one recommendation, but he said that he walked them through all of the homicide charges and that they felt empowered in a way to make a decision if they did not agree with his recommendation. So it's still unclear as to how they did feel and what those recommendations were. Who testified? So who, who, who came into that grand jury and gave evidence and gave um, this uh, grand jury information about what happened that night? So I look at it as twofold. It was heavily law enforcement that was coming in and taking the stand. Typical for a grand jury, usually it's limited to just one investigator, maybe more, who come in and give the facts. But they heard from a lot of law enforcement witnesses, and they also heard a lot of evidence that was recorded. So they had recordings from the night of March 13th when Breonna Taylor was killed. They had the officers who were involved in the shooting, the recordings of them, the actual um, interviews that were taken by other law enforcement who got their statements. And they heard from the witnesses who were there on the scene, the neighbors, how they described the shots that they heard, whether they heard knocking or not. And that really was the gist of this 15 hours. A lot of detectives took the stand. Well, you mentioned a witness, uh, the neighbor. Let's take a listen to that. As soon as she had posed, she hears a pop and then hears a spray of bullets. Her daughter was downstairs making a sandwich and screamed. The scream was a bloody murder type scream. <coughs> Dickerson calls 911 and runs downstairs checking to make sure her 11 year old daughter is okay. Her husband Curtis was asleep but all three children were awake when the shooting occurred. Her son was in his room, all the bedrooms are upstairs, his son was in his room watching something on his laptop, and her other daughter was in her room watching something on her laptop. The pop noise was a gunshot, and then she heard the spray of gunfire. There wasn't much time between the first gunshot and the spray of gunshots. She's familiar with gunfire because she's, she has a carry and a concealed permit and, and has been exposed to gunfire in the past. On the 911 call, she identifies a second round of gunshots, but believes it could have been the SWAT truck blowing off the parking lot gate. 
All right, Julia, what's the significance of, of this witness and, and her testimony? So that was Detective Herman Hall recounting his interview with that neighbor. Her house was immediately behind the home of Breonna Taylor. And she's describing a really chaotic scene. She's describing how the gunshots were fired that she heard first like a spray of bullets and then a pause. And I think it's significant because I heard grand jurors asking more questions about that pause, about how long the pause was between the first gunshots, shot or shots that she heard, and then the second round and whether there were more. But I have to point out, Benny, this interview of this witness was on June 26th. That's nearly three months, two to three months after this incident happened. Now, another huge issue in this case has been the no-knock warrant, right? Was this a no-knock? Did they knock? Did they not knock? I want to play one of the um, officers' statements regarding that issue, and then let's talk more about what else this grand jury heard about, whether or not anyone knocked on the door before they executed this search warrant. Once they quit contact with him, because it was a good, I would say, more than two minutes of me knocking on the door saying, please, and I can hear somebody inside of it. So what was the oh, this is one part of the testimony overall the evidence about whether or not there was a knock or wasn't a knock and whether anyone heard police outside before they entered what what did this grand jury hear If I'm looking at this from the perspective of the grand jurors they heard overwhelming evidence and in the form of testimony that there was a knock and that there were several knocks I saw heard and saw in the transcripts that we created many times that these witnesses said six to seven times that they either knock and or announce themselves. And these were the officers who were there helping with the execution of the warrant. These were the officers who interviewed the officers who were involved. And it's the actual three officers who were involved in the shooting, uh, Cosgrove, Mattingly, and Hankison. They all said, we knocked, we waited, we had interaction with somebody upstairs. We told that person to go away while we were dealing with this warrant. We knocked again, announced, and then we rammed the door. So there's someone upstairs from the apartment who heard something happening in the hallways. That is the witness that we believe is the one who the New York Times mentioned that they uh, interviewed 12 different witnesses and only one of them heard and announced and that this was a witness who may or may not have changed their story uh, several times between whether they announced. So that person would have been interacting with police and would have heard everything that was going on. Okay. Was there any evidence, any testimony from anyone saying that they saw police show up and just go into the into the apartment without knocking? Not that I heard, Vinny. Now, okay. if you're looking at it analysis-wise, these are witnesses who were inside their homes, and they say they didn't hear. They didn't mention hearing an announcement. 
they mostly just either heard the knocking or they heard the uh, the gunshots. The gunshots. Got you. They didn't hear an announcement. Okay. Or didn't say that they heard an announcement. Now, the other huge twist this case has taken, unprecedented again, is the grand jurors themselves through third parties are now coming forward. And, and explain to us what is going on here. Who is reaching out? What do they want to do? And how is it all playing out? It's the anonymous grand jurors. They are finding people to speak up for them. After they reached their indictment and it became national, international headlines of what would be the outcome, we then, a couple of days later, found out that one of the grand jurors had hired an attorney. And that attorney filed a motion in the case to get those audio recordings released. And there's this indication that this person wants to talk, that they want to share their story. We don't know what that story is, what they felt uncomfortable about. They want the judge to give them a sort of immunity to protect them if they are going to come forward. And after we received all of these audio recordings, it's been released to the public. Now we learn just in the last couple of days that a second grand juror has reached out to an activist and they have something that they want to say. We still don't know what. That is probably the most frustrating thing is that they want to talk, but what is it that they want to say? That will be, you know, the next twist in this case. It's unreal. It's unlike anything I've uh, ever experienced in my years at, at Court TV because the, the grand jury proceedings are are very secretive and have always been, but here there is the release of the recordings of witness testimony, which I've never seen, and now grand jurors that want to speak. So I know, Julie, today you are going to stay on top of this story. Correct? Absolutely. 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 You know we will. And, and, I, and I know we'll have you back to talk more about this because I don't think this is the end. I think uh, more is going to happen and will continue to happen. And uh, Julia, thanks so much. Thanks, Vinny. All right. When we come back now, I've analyzed this case and I've, I've looked at it and I've listened to the evidence in the case. And I'm a former prosecutor and I see no roadmap here whatsoever to criminal charges related to the shooting of Breonna Taylor. It's tragic. It shouldn't have happened. You know, we've got a, a, a civil arm to our system of justice that has dealt with uh, that behavior, and, and rightfully so. But on the criminal end, as a, as a prosecutor, understanding the burden that you have and the standards you have to meet, I see no roadmap to criminal charges here for homicide. But the question now is, will my next guest have a roadmap? When we return, Eklund Mercy who's a regular here on the podcast, great criminal defense attorney from Atlanta, although I think she's got Jersey roots, will come here and try to convince me, but more importantly, convince you that there should be criminal charges against the police officers who took the life of Breonna Taylor. That's next. true crime series these are the true stories behind the trials renowned journalist ashley banfield takes you behind the scenes of the most compelling cases in history we focus on the detail we focus on the evidence and investigates the murders lies and alibis that led to justice in the courtroom this is the new chapter in true crime judgment with ashley banfield all new episodes sunday nights at eight on court tv 
I'm a former prosecutor, and, and that's the way I see the world, and that's clearly the way I analyze cases each and every day and night on court TV. And I let you know that ahead of time, okay? And that's who I am. So I'm not going to hide it. I'm not going to. But I have no I have no agenda other than the agenda that I had when I was a prosecutor, which is to seek justice, which is to seek the truth. And uh, I look at each case, not through an emotional sphere, but I look through each case and and story that I cover as, OK, as a prosecutor. OK, here are the facts. What can I prove? What can't I prove? So so that's that to me, that's what what my job is as a prosecutor. And, and that's still the way I see it, and that's the way I analyze things. Now, I'm looking at the Breonna Taylor case, and as I said, um, it, it's a tragedy. should not have happened. There were major problems with everything surrounding all of this. At the end of the day, Breonna Taylor should be alive. We have a system of justice that's divided into two pieces. One piece is the civil side. The other is the criminal side. On the civil side, there are certain standards and burdens of proof, and under... Uh, the facts that have been presented in the Breonna Taylor case, I think there's a strong case there, and there has been, and that has been settled. So the system of justice has dealt with the case on that end. Now there is a, a groundswell and a, and a drumbeat for criminal charges uh, for the shooting of Breonna Taylor. But I look at the facts, and, and I, don't, I don't see how we can get there. So joining us now is Eklund Mercy, great criminal defense attorney, regular here on the podcast. Eklund, great to see you. Oh, great to see you too. I'm so glad you're feeling better. Yep, thank you. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, I feel I feel fine. I feel totally, almost totally normal, um, as normal as we can feel these days. But <laughs> let me do this, Eklund, because I want you to lay out the way you see a roadmap here to homicide charges for the shooting mm -hmm. death of Breonna Taylor. But but let me give you my analysis first, so you can respond to that. I think that'll be the better way to do it, don't you? Okay. I usually like ladies first, but I think let me just lay out the way I see it and then you tell me why I'm wrong and then you tell all the folks who are listening why you're right, okay? Okay. So, <laughs> let's go. In this case, the officers who are executing the search warrant have a search warrant in their hand that's been signed by a judge. All right? This is a mm -hmm. lawful search warrant in their hands. Now, if there's a problem with that search warrant, if someone lied, like the FBI lied in some search warrants in another case, um, if they lied about it, okay, investigate those officers who lied for the search warrant. But the officers executing the search warrant had nothing to do with obtaining the search warrant. They are just executing it, okay? So they show up with a search warrant signed by a judge. So they are lawfully where they are supposed to be in executing the search warrant. They have a legal right to be there. They've got a search warrant signed by a judge. Then, is it a no-knock? Is it a, a knock-and-announce warrant? All right? There's been some debate about that. Um, they testified that it was a no-knock warrant, but they didn't treat it as a no-knock warrant. They treated it as a knock-and-announce. And again, the evidence and the testimony before the grand jury is that they knocked and announced. Okay? There is no one who testified. There's no one you could put on the witness stand and said, yeah, I saw police come up there and just go straight into the apartment. Okay, which is what I would need. Okay, which is what I would need if, if you're trying to prove that they didn't knock and announce to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Because, you know, people not hearing the knock and announce is not enough evidence to prove that they just went into the house. You need someone to actually see them do it. Okay, because you're, you've got uh, several people, including one neighbor who gave statements saying, yeah, I heard them knock and announce that they were police, okay? Um, but it's a no-knock warrant, so they don't even have to. They don't even have to. 
but they are lawfully where they are. They're executing the search warrant. And as they're executing the search warrant, someone fires a gun at them from inside the apartment. Okay, so now you're lawfully where you are allowed to be, and someone is firing a gun at you. You now, as a police officer or as an ordinary citizen, if you are lawfully where you were allowed to be according to the laws of our nation, you are allowed to defend yourself. And one way you are permitted to defend yourself is to fire a weapon and return fire, which is what they did. So you've got lawfully there, executing a search warrant, Someone fires at you, actually strikes one of the officers. Now you return fire. That is a justifiable action in discharging the weapon at that point because you've been fired upon. If there was evidence that they barged into the, into the apartment or knocked and announced and went in there and just started firing their weapons, now you've got a case. But the first shot comes at them, and one of the officers is actually struck. So I see no criminal theory here, no facts to support it, no mens rea, criminal intent, and the actions that were taken by the officers, the way I see them, are justified by our criminal statutes. And that's the way I see it, Eklund. Oh, well, I don't see it that way. <laughs> so here's the thing. Um, so with regards to, this is the problem. I feel that they are trying to have a trial before having a trial. What grand juries are supposed to do is just find probable cause. You just need probable cause that there are trustworthy facts that a crime did commit or was about to be committed. And the fact that we're having this argument means that there is probable cause. Doesn't mean that he's they're guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. There could possibly be a defense. But Breonna Taylor deserved that opportunity. The issue is, is that when it comes to police officers being the defendant, suddenly the prosecutor doesn't know where he stands. Suddenly, because they have to work together, they have to be, you know what I'm saying? They work together, they work hand in hand. Now you're, you're, you're playing the role of a defense attorney for, uh, for a police officer. The issue here is that grand juries are secretive. But they're also done by a prosecutor. This particular prosecutor who told the American public that he presented to the grand jury all the homicide charges, and we know that to be false. So the fact that we have the fact that we have missing things, the fact that, oh, there's a faulty um, there's a faulty search warrant. But most importantly, we have we have facts that she she wasn't involved at all. It's the wrong home. Then we have we have the fact that the actual boyfriend, the actual ex-boyfriend, who is no longer in a relationship with her, who never did any criminal acts at her home, is already in custody. So the issue is we have too many, we have too many question marks, we have too many ellipses, we have too many, too many. The fact is, is that at what point, as a former prosecutor, if you had a gang case, the issue is once once a police officer steps out of the scope. All right. They are again, police officers are just like human beings. They are regular citizens as well. Although they have a higher obligation, although they have a responsibility, you have to stay in the scope of your job. The moment you stand out of the scope, you are now looked at as a possible defendant. So as a former prosecutor, you mean to tell me if you had a gang violence, if you had a gang case, are we going to bring up all the um, 
that defendant's gang homies and be like, yeah, 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 that's how he, that's how it happened, that's how it happened. No, you're gonna do, you're gonna, you're gonna indict and let them defend themselves. But the fact is that man took that away from Breonna Taylor's family, even though they, there is a possibility they could probably be found not guilty. That's fine, but let's put the case out there. There is enough for probable cause. We don't know if there's enough for beyond a reasonable doubt. But here's but my question for you. Where's the probable cause? The probable Where's the cause pro is which, which is the fact of probable cause and, and what okay. charge does it support? The, is the issue is, is that he didn't shoot. He shot one time. They said he shot Barrage as a bully. He shot one time to defend his home because just like he... Just like the police officers you said was there lawfully, if the warrant was valid, that man was there lawfully right. in his group. There are no charges against him either. His home. No, initially they were. There were initially, but, but there aren't anymore no, once that, the attorney general got his is, hands on it. But here's the thing. The attorney general also, they also, the prosecutors also tried to get the, the um, did the prosecutors also try to get the, the, the boyfriend that they were, that they wanted to, to roll on. Brianna Taylor, the issue is we have, there is corruption. Okay, I, I understand all that. Bad. I understand that, so but I'm that looking for some said, facts. But, okay, the fact is, is that it wasn't his gun that shot the police officer. It was another gun. It was one of their, it was friendly fire. But you put it out there like it was coming from the boyfriend. Wait, who fired he only first? Shot at who fired first? Because he's protecting his home. Right, and right. the issue is there's no, You've it got, was no, it was no, and out. It was a knocking and out, right? But when you have 11 people saying there was just not, and only one person that says there was an announce, we're going to trial, friends. What's well, the here's problem? Well, the pro here's the problem. What you're, what, you're, what you're talking about here is there's a mutual mistake of fact. Brianna's boyfriend, Brianna's boyfriend thinks someone is breaking in when it's police executing a lawful search warrant. Police yes. believe someone is trying to kill police officers when he is actually trying to defend his life and his home with, yes. with Brianna. So it's a mutual mistake. Both are justified in discharging their weapons, and neither well, has any criminal liability. Both may have some civil liability, and we've seen it on the one end already. Um, there may be civil liability, but under a criminal law, the, both of the shootings are justified. No, I don't think so. I think that the issue is, I think that it was, I believe that we have enough facts to bring it to trial. I believe that if the, if the jury was presented with homicide charges, with reckless, at least reckless or negligent in the fact that it, it's almost criminal. Right, where's the you, recklessness? You where's the shot. recklessness? You have, you have one shot. You, you got one shot. Again, if you're doing your job correctly, you would have not. If they keep asking you, you mean to tell me if reckless? I'm, you said I'm, reckless. I didn't say negligent. Reckless. Negligent is civil. Reckless. Get me reckless. to reckless and wanton. Reckless, reckless and wanton in the sense that hey, again, he has the right to defend. He didn't know, so he's legal. He's legally obligated to be there. I agree. If them, these these are all questions that we should not be arguing. That they should be arguing in court. I don't. That's I think it's irrelevant. What's, I mean, it, it, whether I he gets it hit is. by friendly fire or, but it, it's it's undisputed that the first shot is fired by Brianna's boyfriend. Yeah. So what? So it, he's legally obligated to do that. And then at that point, 
you just go in, you don't know what. So at what point do you just go in and you barrage the house? And then you the shoot fact from where is, the gunfire is coming from, which is what and, they did. Oh, you, oh, there you, was one officer laid, who didn't, laid, and he got indicted. They laid that off. They laid that house to rest. They didn't provide. They didn't provide her with care afterwards. They were trying to cover their tracks. Some say that they did have cameras and they didn't have cameras. The fact that there's too many things. We are all speculating. I can't trust the police officer to provide an op, a, a, a real police report. I can't trust that they said, because they were all in it together. We can't trust anything. As a, and, I, and I'm so sorry, but honestly, as a Black woman, I, I have to. Because it's, the issue is they're playing cleanup. And I cannot trust the investigation of somebody who's trying to play cleanup. We won't be able to get real answers until a trial happens. And the fact that is, I love the fact that a grand juror came out and spoke. The reason why they came out and spoke, because if you can see the corruption, you can't have the attorney general say out in public, say that, hey, he did all these things, knowing it was a lie. So when, I, when the attorney general can lie, and it, it is verified that it's a lie, then why, pray tell, can I, can, I, can I not doubt police reports? Can I not doubt the evidence? Even the grand jury recording, you mean tell me it was choppy at best. You knew that it was going to come up. Well, and, so I mean, we the, the law in Kentucky is, is that you it, have to record the evidence. You don't record the deliberations. Yeah. You don't record the arguments and recommendations. And that's, that's the law. And that's fine. But all I know is there was an attorney general who has never tried a case who was on the short list for a Supreme Court justice. And that's that's the person who was in charge of the grand jury to say that I have issues with the facts as as standing. Then I have issues. This is what it is. If they didn't do it, if they if they were justified legally, they will have their day in court as a as a like as a criminal defense attorney. Let me tell you, I have seen it often and we'd be like, no, he has he has this defense or he has this defense. It is never argued during a grand jury. It is not, It is after the indictment. It is after motions. It is after, um, you, it is after you motion for self-defense. It is after things like that. So we can instill some faith in the system. All right. It has been All right. We're, we're going to agree to disagree on this for now, but the, the case will continue. There's going to be developments and, and we'll come back and we'll, we'll hash those out. But uh, wonderful having you on the program. Eklund Mercy, Thank ladies you. and gentlemen. Thank you so much. All right. You heard Eklund going after the attorney general and the prosecutor. You know I'm a former prosecutor. So when we come back, um, I have a message for, and it's not really for Eklund because uh, she bases hers on, on facts, um, but the, the folks who are taking shots at the attorney general but not backing it up, just taking shots, uh, and I've got a message for them and a recommendation when we return. Follow Court TV live over the air, uninterrupted. If you're watching television with an antenna, just rescan your channels now to add Court TV. And go to CourtTV.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch Court TV in your area. Okay, the Attorney General Daniel Cameron is being attacked for the way he has handled the Breonna Taylor investigation. And these attacks are coming from everywhere. And some of these attacks have been racial in nature, which is outrageous, completely outrageous. 
Uh, but the attacks, as I said, are coming from a lot of folks, including celebrities. And, and maybe you saw Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live. They went after the Attorney General of Kentucky by name. It, it, it's unreal. Um, here's the problem. No one who was attacking the Attorney General is saying how you could possibly bring charges in this case, how you could prove them and what the factual basis of those charges are. And Eklund Mercy, passionate, passionate, great attorney. But, I mean, I listened closely, and I think she was a little thin on the facts. And, and I told her that. What, what are the facts? Because that's what you have to do as a prosecutor. Your job as a prosecutor, I say it all the time, is to do justice, which is the truth. And your ethical obligation is to recommend charges to the grand jury when you believe you have the evidence to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. That's your job. And that's it. Your job isn't to indict and then figure it out. You have, to, you have to bring charges and recommend charges that you hope the grand jury will go along with, uh, and most of the time they do. That's the reality. But you have to be able to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt because you know that's your burden. You know that's the way the system works. You don't just bring charges and recommend charges because, yeah, if I recommend these charges, then, you know, uh, we'll see what happens. We'll, we'll, we'll see how it all comes out later. No, you do that. You're not acting uh, in the interest of justice. You're not doing your job, and you're breaking uh, the, the ethical standards of your profession. And you could get in trouble for it, by the way. Now, think about this for one second, okay? Think about this. If, in fact, because a lot of the folks who are calling for the prosecutor to recommend charges that he doesn't believe he can prove, that he does not believe the facts support, a lot of them are criminal defense attorneys, okay? Now, imagine if that's the way our system worked, that prosecutors went in front of the grand jury and recommended charges that they didn't have evidence for, and they recommended charges that they couldn't prove to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. That would completely undermine and turn our system upside down. It would be absurdity. It would be unjust. It would be illegal. And certainly unethical. And, and to attack a prosecutor who has come out and said, here's all the facts, and then releases 15 hours of those facts, and listen to them, and, and tell me, how are you going to prove homicide? How are you going to prove criminal intent here? Okay? Like I argued to, to Eklund Mercy. I mean, it's, it's these officers that are executing the search warrant are not the ones who got the search warrant. These officers got a search warrant signed by a judge, which allowed them to do what they did by entering Breonna Taylor's apartment. And then the law is extremely clear. Self-defense, whether you're a police officer or anyone else, someone fires a gun at you, you can return fire. Period. End of story. Unfortunately, Breonna Taylor was in the hallway when this happened. And she, she got hit, and she got killed, and she shouldn't have. There were other problems associated with this case as a whole. But when you take us to the moment of that night, Daniel Cameron looked at the facts. And said, so there's no way 
then I can recommend charges here because there's no way I could prove them. What are the charges? Where's the criminal intent? Where is the reckless behavior? Is it reckless to execute a search warrant? Is it reckless to return fire? And, and, you're, and, and then the argument that a lot of people make is that, oh, you, you know, they fired so many times. But there's a limit on, on, on how, much, how many times you can return fire? Where is that? And how does that get you into a criminal world? Like, if you're defending yourself, you're defending yourself. To me, if you allowed, or if Daniel Cameron, based upon his, his, the evidence that was presented, recommended homicide charges here, he would, he would be acting unethically. That's when you would have a problem with this, with this prosecutor. You can only recommend charges that you can prove. And you're talking about homicide and murder. You're talking about criminalization. There is such a difference. Our system of justice, civil side, is about negligence. It's about mistakes. Not every mistake, not everything negligent turns into a crime. It just doesn't. And, and I don't want to compare this tragedy to other tragedies, but I'll just give you other examples in the law where behavior that is negligent and results in death is not necessarily criminal. I mean, there are, there are car accidents that happen where people die and someone was negligent, and it's horrible. It's hor- there are doctors every day, every day. There are doctors committing malpractice, and someone dies. It's not a crime. You're entitled, you're entitled under our system of justice to get, there is recourse for you. That's why we have a civil side and a criminal side. But it, it happens. It's, it's tragic. It's horrible. But to prove a criminal case, which is what I used to do as a prosecutor, I need to be able to prove each and every element of the crime beyond any and all reasonable doubt. And still, even after today, I have not heard anyone who's attacked this attorney general give a roadmap and, and a factual basis for proving every element of whatever crime they want to charge these officers with beyond a reasonable doubt. Have not heard it. And, and, and Attorney General Daniel Cameron is doing his job by not bringing charges that he doesn't believe he can prove. That's the way I see it. All right, folks. Thanks so much for listening. And, and by the way, there's a lot of information about this case developing each and every day. You can check out uh, a website, courttv.com updating all the time. Plus, you can watch me every night from 8 to 11 on Court TV, on television. Yes, not just on a podcast, but on television, on the small screen or big screen, depending upon what you have in your home, uh, 8 to 11. And you can get us with a digital antenna for free. Absolutely free. Just get the digital antenna, plug it in, and then scan and rescan it and find Court TV and uh, watch your front row seat to justice. I'm Vinny Politan. Thanks so much for listening. Have a wonderful week. And as always, don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.